Here we are at the last chapter of the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 33. Should have been here last week, uh, but uh, it was a good excuse, as I mentioned, to stretch things out. So we're now at the last chapter. Uh, If you're the kind of person who likes to plan ahead and are wondering what we're going to be doing in the next two weeks, Steve Barry is going to be teaching two classes for us, um, a a bit to be determined, but they'll have something to do with Westminster, but perhaps an overview of the shorter catechism and the larger catechism. Uh, And then following that, uh, just three weeks away, we're going to be back in our fall schedule. So the uh, younger groups will be all going into their individual classes. The adults will stay here with me, and I'll be teaching a class. We're going to be looking at uh, Exodus this fall. We're going to walk through uh, Exodus together in in sort of big chunks, a little bit like we're doing the Westminster, um, but going to try and cover the book as, as well as we can. Today we are in the chapter dealing with uh, the last judgment, the last judgment. Now you see, as uh, as most of them do, uh, there are several sections, and the first contains the the main teaching, the other is basically supplemental material, correcting errors. So the first section deals with what theologians call the general judgment. Uh, Last week we discussed the general resurrection, that is the resurrection of both the wicked and the righteous. Today we're going to talk about the general judgment, the judgment of both uh, the wicked and the righteous. Following that, uh, section 2 discusses the goal of judgment. Uh, Why has God appointed a day of judgment? Well, it's for the the revelation, the revealing of his glory, uh, both in the salvation of the elect and the damnation of the reprobate. And finally, uh, there is a warning to us in section 3. The day is coming, and we don't know when. Uh, that's the warning that we find. The day is unknown. Uh, and, and really both a warning and a consolation. And we're going to look at that. But before we get into these things, we're, we're talking, uh, have been talking the last week, the, the week before, and now this week, about what theologians call the end times. Uh, when you hear them use a word eschatology, uh, that simply means the end times, the study of the last things. Eschatos uh, means the, the things that come last, the end times. Uh, So when you hear that word, that's kind of a loaded word in our uh, contemporary church culture, eschatology, end times. Uh, What are the things that come to mind when you hear those words, when you hear people talking about study of the last things? What do you think? Nothing. Good. (laughs) Anybody? John, yeah. The Son of God descending. Okay, so certainly something that will happen on the last day. Uh, what's the hymn say? The trumpet was down, the, the clouds be rolled back as a scroll. Yeah, yeah, so that's, that's the thing that happens, okay? What else? Just images or, or thoughts that come up. Uh, have you ever talked with other Christians about what will happen in the end times? Carrie, you're laughing. What are you laughing about? Rapture. rapture. <laughs> Wonderful, yes. Uh, yeah, so we, we talk about things like the rapture and and does that happen and when does it happen and what does that What does scripture have to say about these things? Okay, what else? Mike? Resurrection. Resurrection. Absolutely, yeah. The the general resurrection that we studied last time is part of this, uh, the whole uh, eschatology, the last things. Anybody ever have a controversial discussion with any other believers over the end times? I see one head nodding there, Tim. Okay. Uh, That happens sometimes. Uh, This is one of the things in the church that Christians get all excited about, um, and, uh, and whether or not that is warranted uh, remains for us yet to see. 
but the end times are, are the kind of thing that, uh, that there's a lot of discussion around them, um, and, and it's kind of hard to wrap our minds around. Uh, it's, in many ways, a mystery. And so lots of people in the church, both, both lay people and clergy, uh, sometimes have a hard time wrapping our minds around all of these things. Uh, as an example, there is uh, one young lady in our church who has consistently asked me uh, that we would study Revelation together with the youth. And I have consistently kicked that can as far down the road as I could because uh, it's intimidating just to, to sort of wrap our minds around all of these things. Um, I have made a promise that, uh, that we'll study that before, uh, before I leave the church, but now that I've been called as a senior pastor, that, that could be whenever. Uh, so we've got a, a much longer timeline on that, so I haven't forgotten about it. But um, So it, it's hard for us, both you know, whether you're a, a lay person in the church or you're clergy, it's hard to wrap our minds around these things. Um, so what we're going to do today is a little bit backwards. We're going to start, because there's so much controversy, we're going to start in section three. Hopefully we're not going to spend a lot of time in section three, but I thought uh, that if any week uh, we want to get past the first section, what we're going to have to do is start at the end and work our way back. So uh, we will actually get past the first section this week because we're going to start with section number three. Uh, as we consider that, uh, I want to give you uh, what I think is, is a, a good summary um, of the approach in the Westminster Confession of Faith to the Study of the Last Things. Ian Golliger is a pastor in British Columbia. He suggested the divines in crafting um, all three of the sections of this last chapter have shown what he says is considerable restraint. Considerable restraint in what they've written. Uh, it largely reflects the language of Scripture, especially the first section. Uh, when you start to look at the Scripture proofs, you'll find that it is almost verbatim repeated uh, in this first section. Uh, it doesn't speculate on timetables. I have a few books in my office on eschatology that are uh, in varying levels of, of orthodoxy, but, but some of them have charts and timetables, uh, and it lays out, here's where it will happen, uh, and these things will happen, and then this, and we know it's going to be sometime around this year, uh, maybe in this month, that the Lord will come back. Well, this doesn't speculate. Uh, in fact, it does the opposite of that. It maintains a scriptural position. Uh, it doesn't venture onto various views of the millennium. You know, that, that's one thing that Christians like to talk about. Are you a premillennialist? Are you a postmillennialist? Are you an amillennialist? Uh, and, and all of those ideas and all those positions, if you don't even know what those are, that's okay. That's part of the controversy uh, that, that Christians go back and forth on. Uh, probably all of those views were represented by people that were part of the Westminster Assembly. Uh, there were no dispensationalists, because that hadn't really come around yet, but there was premillennialism. There's a classical premillennialism. Uh, but it does not show up anywhere in this last chapter. Uh, that's sort of the, the secondary things, and they want to focus on the primary, and so that they really show a considerable restraint. Now, uh, let's start at the end, section 3. Uh, could somebody read chapter 33, section 3 for us, please? Anybody that can grab it? John, please. Thank you. Now, the confession, um, 
ends on what should be a very humbling note for us. It ends uh, in, in many ways as a, a wonderful conclusion to the way that it started. What was the, the first chapter of the Westminster about? You might remember, or you might just have to flip back a little bit. What's the first chapter of the Westminster? Scripture. The way that the Lord has revealed his truth to mankind. And now here's what it says in the last section of the last chapter. uh, That God will have a day unknown to men. It ends with a limit to the things that we can know and the things that we should know. There are things that the Lord has revealed. There are things that he has not revealed. There are things that are clear in Scripture. There are things that are not clear in Scripture. And this should humble us to to let those things that perhaps uh, are intentionally unclear remain intentionally unclear. The the Lord has set limits. So it's good to talk about these things. It's good to discuss them with other believers and and to think through, well, what is the end time? I mean, there is a, a section, there's a chapter here on the last judgment. So scripture has told us, but it has not told us everything that we might want to know. Um, what was the section I had here? You can go back and, and look at the first section, but, uh, but it does let us know in the first chapter, uh, it talks about God revealing, and then here it comes to uh, God uh, saying that there is an end to revelation. Uh, there are limits to what we can know. And, and so where do those limits come from? Are they limits that we have simply because we, are not, uh, we haven't attained to some level? Will we transcend some sort of limitation at some point here in this life? Or do those come from somewhere else? Bill? Well, the things we don't know, I, I always look at it as mysteries that God belong to God and not to us. Yeah. He reveals what we need for our salvation, and beyond that, mm-hmm. he has things that when we get to heaven, we can answer. Yeah. Yeah, that these are limits that the Lord himself has imposed. Uh, It's not just a matter of, of, well, we're not smart enough, or we don't know enough. Um, Even even Paul, uh, in 2 Corinthians, there's this strange uh, exchange there, and he says, you know, I know a man. It's pretty clear from the context he's talking about himself. He says, I know a man who was caught up to the highest heavens and saw things which cannot be spoken. That the Lord has, has put limits here. And even John, in the book of Revelation, that deals with the coming age and the end of all things, uh, there's a point at which the angel says to John, don't talk about these things. Don't write about these things. The Lord has designed uh, that, uh, that his people would not know these things. Um, so we need to stop and consider that it's part of God's good plan that we do not know the day or the hour Uh, when the dead will be brought forth, uh, and it's, uh, in a large sense, exactly what we experience with so much of life, uh, that we walk by faith. We don't walk by sight. Uh, That is God's good design for us. It should be a reminder, both as as we think about uh, the end times and also as we think about uh, the regular things of our daily lives. Uh, You know, we get so worked up with, well, if I knew what would happen, uh, if, if God would just tell me what his will is for me, if, if I knew that I should take this job or not take this job, or I should marry that person or not marry this person, and when you get worked up with those things, and the Lord says, there are things that you shouldn't know, but you should still follow me. <laughs> and that should be an encouragement to us. Uh, that it's not, it's not as though God doesn't care about his people. That's not why he hasn't told them about these things, uh, but that it's, it's good for them to walk by faith. It's good to them to grow in their faith. And so what's God's purpose? Specifically here in, in, in section 3, what is God's purpose for not telling his people these things that we might want to know? 
Absolutely. Absolutely. The, the other word uh, that, it, that it shows, that they may be always watchful. It's the same thing, that they may be always prepared. Oh, come Lord Jesus. Uh, we're not asleep at the wheel. Uh, and, and you find you know, Jesus talking about the, the parable of the ten virgins. And he talks about the coming of the end of the age will be like this. Uh, that there are those who are prepared, there are those who are unprepared. And you don't know when it's going to happen. Uh, it speaks of these things as, uh, what are the, the images that we get uh, in Scripture for when this will happen? What do we get? Some, some metaphors that Jesus tells his people. Like the, like the bridegroom coming back and you, and you don't know when. What else? The twinkling of an eye. It happens. Uh, and it, it talks in the twinkling of an eye, sort of the idea that the lightning will flash from one side to the other and everybody will see it. Uh, everybody will see it. It's not hidden. It's not, uh, you know, that was one of the things. I grew up in a church that talked a lot about the rapture. Uh, and it was this sort of like, well, has it happened and you just don't know it yet? Did you, did you miss it? No, no, no. When these things happen, uh, the twinkling of an eye, it's going to happen. You're going to know it. Yeah, what about some other ones? A thief in the night. And a thief doesn't break in when you're ready for him. The thief sort of watches and, and waits until you are, uh, you are unsuspected. That's the point of, of the thief coming. Uh, and you are unprepared. And so always be prepared. You, you don't know the day or the hour. Uh, the other thing that Jesus says in, uh, in uh, Mark 13 and Matthew chapter 24, uh, those two chapters run very parallel to one another. And Jesus is talking about the end of the age. And he says, stay awake. Be watchful. What I say to you, I say to everybody, stay awake. And so watchfulness is, is the watchword, in a sense. Um, watchfulness, uh, well, what does it mean for us to be watchful? To just be expecting these things? To be always talking about these things? Or, or is there something else? To deter us from sin. So there's a moral implication to this watchfulness. Okay? Okay. Anything else? To deter us from sin. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so what, is, uh, what does Peter say? He talks about uh, when will God come? And some people have said that he's not going to come. He's, he's just going to tarry. Uh, these promises are never going to be fulfilled. And he says, don't, uh, don't be lured away by that. Uh, God's timing is not your timing. Uh, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years. A thousand years is like a day. And so you're, you're not on the same timetable. Even if we could spell it out and say, oh, it's going to be this and it's going to be that and uh, we're going to figure it out. Well, it doesn't work that way. Uh, but don't let that deter you. And, and he goes on to say, uh, you know, his, his tarrying, his waiting uh, is not just on the count of slowness, but the Lord desires all men to come to salvation. Uh, and, and we can talk about how we reconcile that with God's providence and his election and all those things. Uh, but here's the truth that Peter gives us, that, that part of his slowness in coming is not that we would fall asleep at the wheel, but so that we would realize more and more and more the promises that he gives. Now, Teresa raised an interesting point. Uh, could somebody get for us, uh, in fact, Teresa, would you mind reading Second uh, Peter? If you have your Bible there. Second uh, Peter, chapter 3. In fact, let's all turn there. And it's going to be more than just what's in the, uh, in the bottom of the, uh, the confession, if you've got one. I don't mean to put you on the, the spot there. That's okay. Could somebody grab Second Peter, chapter 3? Second Peter, chapter 3. Scott, verses 7 through 14. I waited until you volunteered to tell you you're going to be reading seven verses. 
Yep, yep, it was just, I was stretching, that's, that's it. Second Peter chapter 3, verses 7 through 14, please. Thank you. So that is extremely clear. There are no questions at all about what he's talking about, right? Uh, the, the heavens and the earth and the elements being burnt up as with fire and, and fervent heat. I like the way that translation has it. Um, so we see what Teresa raised, this idea of a, a moral implication of this watchfulness. You see it in verse 11. You see it in verse 14. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Since these things are happening, since God's judgment is coming, since the the eschaton is hastening on, uh, what sort of people ought we to be? And it shows up again in verse 14. Therefore, beloved, uh, since you are waiting for these things, since you are watchful, we could say, since you're waiting for these things, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. So there is a moral implication to this, uh, this watchfulness. Is there anything else to it? Anything else that jumped out at you as we were reading that that you say, oh, this is what watchfulness looks like. So we've already got the moral idea. We've already got this idea of, uh, he says, hastening the day of the Lord. Uh, I think we could, we could perhaps, uh, depending on how you read these things, connect that with, um, with the spread of the gospel. Why is the Lord tarrying? Because he, he's waiting for the full number of his people to be brought in. He's waiting for all his people to come to salvation. So, so what else might be there? It puts things in proper perspective. Uh, elsewhere in, in Scripture, we don't have, it's not a picture of the end times, um, but in the Psalms somewhere, uh, it says, as the watchman waits for morning, so my soul waits for you, O Lord. This idea that, that it was the watchman's job to stand watch over the city, 
Uh, and there was something about, you know, when, when the dawn comes, when the day dawns, then, then things are a little bit safer in the city. His job is a little bit easier because he knows the day has come and, and things are revealed. And so there's a, there's a yearning, there's a longing for the day to come. The same thing shows up here. It should, it should give us this yearning and this longing. Uh, C.S. Lewis famously talked about Christians as living under this sort of homesickness. I think that's what, what Peter's talking about here, or, or rather C.S. Lewis is talking about what Peter's talking about. Uh, did you see it there? Um, uh, which, which, verse 13. According to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. It causes us to have a different view of what happens here, doesn't it? That there's coming something where, where righteousness will dwell. That it will not be broken as the things now are broken. That, that all this talk of the fire, and, and it's, a, it's refining language. It's cleansing language. That there's coming some day. Notice uh, when we read in the confession. What does it say? Um, as Christ would have us to be certainly persuaded that there shall be a day of judgment, both, one, to deter all men from sin. So we've talked about that, the moral uh, component. And two, for the greater consolation of the godly in their adversity. There's this homesickness. What are the saints doing uh, around the throne of God? When you turn to Revelation, there are two pictures. There's a picture of the saints gathered around the throne of God, and they're praising him. There's a very different picture in Revelation of the saints uh, gathered around the throne, and, and their prayers rise to heaven. And what is the content of that prayer? Do you remember? How long, O oh Lord? How long will, will your people be continually given over to, to death and, and to persecution and, and to waiting for your kingdom to come where righteousness dwells? There's a homesickness there, and there should be. When we talk about the fact that, that the kingdom is coming in its fullness, it should make us say, Amen, come Lord Jesus. But we get sleepy. Now that's the picture Jesus uses. Stay awake. Don't go to sleep. Don't, don't be sleepily going through these things where we just look at life and we say, yeah, things are nice here. Things are okay. Um, you know, and, and there's lots of joy in, in the world. We're not just supposed to be morose and, and humdrum all the time. There, there are good things. There are uh, you know, children born and there are spring days and there, you know, all kinds of good things. It doesn't mean that we have to be dour all the time, but it should uh, lend us to this sort of a, a, a longing. Because there's something that's coming that's, that's even better than a warm spring day, even better than bright, fresh flowers, and, and even better than the birth uh, of a newborn child. There's something coming that is, that is immensely great, and it's for our consolation so that we, we long for these things. Okay. Now, uh, let's go uh, to the first section. Uh, having looked at that one rather briefly, let's go now and, and really talk about uh, what we find in this last judgment. And I'm going to need... Uh, another person uh, to read for us, please. Could I get a volunteer to read chapter 33, section 1? Elizabeth, please do. Thank you.
Thank you. The very first thing we see in this section is the reality of this day of judgment. An inescapable reality of judgment. Do you notice the very first phrase, God hath appointed? There is no stronger language in Scripture than to say that God has decreed that this will happen. The one who is above all things and over all things, who works all of the world and and everything according to the counsel of his will, says this is going to happen. And so we need to be prepared. That's the reality that it begins with. Uh, now, isn't that strange? Um, you know, if, we, if we consider the way that Paul talks about this, and we contrast that with the way that we sometimes talk about those things. R.C. Sproul has a really good uh, comparison. Uh, he says, what we see in, in contemporary evangelism language uh, is that we have added this, this sense of invitation. I invite you to make the Lord your Savior. I I invite you. The Lord invites you to come to him. That's not the language that Paul uses. Let's take a look in Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, verses 30 and 31. Now this uh, this is Paul speaking to uh, those gathered in Athens, the intellectual center of the day. Um, and again, so this is uh, getting a lot from R.C. Sproul this morning. He's, he says that, um, that R.C. Sproul is talking here to the relativists of his day, the Stoics and the Epicureans. And basically, at the end of their philosophy, they both said that you can't know ultimate, absolute truth, and so what you need to do is figure out the best way to live now. And they had very different approaches to that. The Stoics were, were about virtue, the Epicureans about uh, pleasure, not a base sort of pleasure. When you really get into Epicureanism, it's sort of a higher pleasure. And, and, but but they're, they're basically aimed at the same thing. Uh, how can you live uh, the best life now? Because we don't really know what's going to come, and we can't know ultimate things. And then this is what Paul says to them. Who's got Acts chapter 17, verses 30 and 31? Tim. All right. Paul doesn't use the word invited, does he? What's the word that he uses? Commands. That's strong language. That's much stronger than, than I would normally be, uh, be tempted to make a gospel presentation to somebody that I meet. Um, I don't think I've ever looked at anybody in the eye and said, God commands you to repent. This is what Paul does. He says, here are all these people that are talking about moral relativism and, and just sort of doing what you can now. And, and Paul says, here's the reality. God has fixed a day. He has appointed a day. And more than just appointing a day, he has given evidence. What's the evidence that, the, that this is actually going to happen? What's the end of verse 31 tell us? Resurrection. Resurrection. Now here again, we're challenged in the way that we normally read Scripture. We normally think of, of resurrection as... Isn't that a wonderful consolation for believers? 
who will be resurrected. And, and Paul spends the entire 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians talking about what a consolation this is for believers. The fact that, that we too will have a share in, in his glorious resurrection uh, body, that, that we'll have bodies like that. We'll be resurrected. We'll take part in that sort of thing. But, but now he says the resurrection is not just a consolation for believers, but it's a condemnation for unbelievers. Judgment is coming. The Lord has shown that he will raise uh, and, and people will stand before him body and soul and will give account, as the confession continues to, to say, according to what they've done in the body, whether good or evil. Um, yes, absolutely, Teresa. Thank you for stopping me. Yeah. So the way that the confession has laid it out, and I think in a very biblical way, uh, the, the timeline that we can ascertain is that when we die, if we die before the resurrection, uh, we, as we studied last week, the souls of believers, not yet their bodies, but the souls of believers will dwell with the Lord. The judgment is not yet. The judgment is not until the resurrection. We'll be with him. Yeah. And, and those who are not his go into a place of, of torment and a place of, uh, of um, perdition uh, that is not yet uh, complete because their bodies haven't been raised. Soul torment, but not yet body torment. And then when bodies are raised, both of the, the just and the unjust, the, the general resurrection that we talked about last time, then uh, the judgment happens. Okay? So there's sort of a, a timeline. There's a, there's a gap unless uh, the Lord comes back while we're still living. And it says we'll be caught up in the air, and we'll be changed, we'll be like him. Uh, and the sea will give up her dead, and, and then it will happen. It will happen uh, at, the, at the time of the resurrection. So it, it actually, Scripture talks about both of these things as, as happening in the same day. Uh, and how, uh, how we'll conceive of a day uh, when the sun and the moon have passed away, and there is no night uh, or, or darkness, and, and he alone gives light, who knows? Um, but it, it talks about a single day wherein the resurrection and the judgment will both happen. And it's not until that time that this judgment happens. Good. Thank you for the question. Yeah, as I'm, as I'm motoring along through, don't forget to stop me if you, if you have any other questions. Uh, so um, here's this idea that, uh, that the Lord has, uh, has commanded a day. Now, you, you don't need me to tell you that this is an unpopular idea in, in our day and age. Uh, several years ago, um, Newsweek, I believe it was, published an article titled, We Are All Hindus Now. Now, for, for what it's worth, um, their statement was basically aimed at, at uh, pointing out our, uh, our religious pluralism. This idea that just as, as the Hindu system says, well, well, that's true, and that's true, and that's true, and, and Vishnu is a god, and, and, and all these other gods are gods, and, and just sort of, they coexist. Uh, and, and if you uh, you know, call uh, a Hindu, uh, I, I haven't done it, but I've heard, if, if you uh, sort of evangelize to a Hindu and you say, will you accept Christ? They say, well, sure, will you accept Vishnu? No big deal. I can add another one to the pantheon. Uh, and so the, the, the critique in the Newsweek article was that Western civilization is becoming more and more Hindu. We just say, okay, that's fine. You do your thing, I'll do mine, and that's fine. But, but logically, these things don't continue too long. Uh, the next logical step is that we simply say, well, well nothing's true. Um, you know, it's not that, that these things can all be true, but, uh, but logically, logically they could all be untrue. And so that's sort of the, the step uh, that, that we get to 
Uh, and that's what we see in our society now, that we're looking more and more like the Athens of Paul's day. Uh, and what we need to reclaim is this idea of a, a coming judgment, where Paul stands and says, the Lord commands all men to repent because the judgment uh, is coming. Uh, now, how will the Lord judge the world? And by whom? How will the Lord judge the world? It says two things. It says, in and by. Okay, in Acts. Mm-hmm. Okay. With justice, uh, by, so the next phrase is there too. By the man. Now, this is the same phrase. Remember I said this first section is very largely just quoted from Scripture. That's what we find in the confession. Uh, wherein he will judge the world in righteousness by Jesus Christ. So they, they show us who is that man that he has chosen. Uh, and so he will judge it in righteousness. What does it mean that the Lord will judge the world in righteousness? What is righteousness? Okay. No. No, no, no. Uh, but he does. And perfectly right. Uh, and completely right, uh, and with no falsehood whatsoever. When the judgment happens, when the judgment happens, and uh, we'll just stick with the idea of the, the unrighteous first. So I, I've, I've passed out some supplemental reading material. Don't look at it now. We're going to look at it in a minute. Yeah. <laughs> don't, don't look at it yet. Because um, it deals with what happens to the unrighteous, what happens to the righteous. Uh, it's a, really a beautiful section of the larger catechism. I think you'll, you'll enjoy it. But uh, when the judgment happens and the unrighteous are judged and they are condemned, what will be their reaction? Okay. So there's one. Yeah, but, but what about these things? What about these things? Okay. And then what does Christ say to them? I never knew you. And at that point, when, when they are ushered away from his presence, how many of the unbelievers will say, Lord, you're being unfair? None. None. Why? Why do we know that no one will claim that the Lord is being unfair? Yeah, Ronnie. Yeah. And the Lord will judge the world in righteousness. And that righteousness will be clear and it will be seen. And believers and unbelievers will see it. And when the sentence of judgment is passed and when they are ushered away from the presence of his mercy, they will say, yep, that's what I deserve. Because it will be righteous. It will be completely righteous, and it will be visibly, ascertainably righteous. We will see that. That's what it means when it says the Lord will judge the world in righteousness. Uh, that there is no shadow of, uh, oh, maybe it's just, uh, you know, maybe he's not doing the right thing. Maybe, maybe he hasn't really uh, judged the world uh, the way that he should. No, no, no. Abraham in the Old Testament says, will not the judge of all the earth do right? 
Now, that doesn't exclude mercy, does it? Because in that passage, and I'm going to get to you, Jay, in that passage, Abraham is calling on the Lord to be merciful. The Lord is saying, I'm going down to Sodom and Gomorrah. I'm going to see about this cry that has come up to me. And he's asking, well, what about, what about if there are 50? What if there are 40? What if there are 30 and 10? And what if there are only five? He says, far be it from me, you know, will not the judge of all the earth be right? But he's still pleading mercy. And these things are not mutually exclusive, and that will be shown as well. That's one of the things that we grapple with now. How can the Lord save some and not others and still be right? But at that point, the Lord will say, I've known you, I've not known you. And both sides will say, yep, that's the way it is. Uh, this righteousness will be completely shown. Jay, what were you going to add to the discussion? Yeah. Yeah, I, I like what you're saying there, that both sides, it's really an issue of a relationship. Um, that you, you need a judge for there to be righteousness. Uh, I've heard it said, um, one of the guys on the, the White Horse Inn podcast, um, you know, we like to think of uh, our Christianity as, as sort of an add-on. Well, you've got your life, but I've got a relationship with Jesus, and wouldn't you like to have a relationship with him? But the reality is, we're already in relationship with him. And the relationship might be that he is our judge. And what we need is the relationship of an advocate. We need a different relationship with him. We're all already in relationship. That's why Paul can stand in Athens and say, he commands everyone everywhere to repent. You're in relationship with him. You're a covenant breaker. That's your relationship. Uh, And judgment is coming. Uh, And so repent and turn to him because there is a man that he has appointed. Which brings us to our next point. Uh, So the Lord will judge the world in righteousness, and he will judge the world by Jesus Christ. Does that sit strangely with anyone? Didn't Jesus say somewhere that uh, that he has not come into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him? Here again is is a time where we come against the language of Scripture, and we're challenged to rethink the way that we interpret some of these things. Not that it totally breaks our paradigm of who Jesus is, but Scripture and Jesus himself talks about judgment being committed to him. He says that in John chapter 5. Let's take a look there, uh, if you've got it. Um, John chapter 5, verse 22. In fact, it's down in the footnotes of the, uh, the confession that you have, if you have it in the book form. John chapter 5, verse 22, and then verse 27. 
Jesus says, the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent them. That was 23 as well. And then down to verse 27. And he has given him, that is Christ, he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Now there's a clue at the end there, but why is it uh, that judgment has been committed to Jesus, to the Son, and is not taken up by the Father? Why is it that Jesus uh, has the judgment and has the right of judgment uh, and that the Father has given it to him and has not retained that for himself? Why should Jesus be our judge and not the Father? Yeah, what does it say? Uh, In verse 27, he has committed it to him because he is the Son of Man. Yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, it's, It's part of his role as mediator. It's part of what he does. His ministry in the flesh... Uh, is to deal with sin completely. To deal with sin in the hearts of his people and to deal with sin in the larger sense of dealing with sin. This is what Hodge says. He says, The judge on this great occasion, on the day of judgment, the judge is to be not God absolutely considered, not the Godhead, but the God-man in his office as mediatorial king. All judgment is said to be not inherently his, but committed to him, given to him by the Father. He conducts the judgment as the king. Quote, for I was hungered, and you gave me meat. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. And the king shall answer and say to them, Verily I say unto you, inasmuch as you have done it to the one of the least of these, my brethren, you have done it to me. End quote. And thus, as mediatorial king, he will consummate his work, in the destruction of his enemies, the complete redemption of his friends, and the restoration of all things. That's what Jesus does. Not just uh, that second one, not just the redemption of his friends, but he also works for the destruction of his enemies, the restoration of all things. And that means that he is also the judge. He's the one who stands. 1 Timothy chapter 2 says, There is one God, there is one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. It's part of his role as our mediator, to stand and to be the judge. Um, Yeah. Tribunal? In the confession. Good question. Likewise, all persons that have lived upon earth shall appear before the tribunal of Christ uh, to give an account of their thoughts, words, and deeds. Now, here is where we get to your supplemental reading. So if you've got it, uh, take it out. Let's take a look at verse uh, at section 90. Section 90. Question 90, rather. What shall be done to the righteous at the day of judgment? We're not going to read the whole thing. At the day of judgment, the righteous being caught up to Christ in the clouds shall be set on his right hand, there openly acknowledged and acquitted, shall join with him in the judging of reprobate angels and men, and shall be received into heaven where they shall be fully and forever freed from all sin and misery. Now, I think... Uh, what is meant by tribunal is that, uh, that it's a thing that actually happens, uh, that there is a court that's in place, 
and you stand in that court. Um, not that it's a, it's a mere um, separation. Okay? Uh, not that it's a, you come this way and you go that way. Uh, but there is that, but it also involves an actual judgment. No, no, no. So you can have a, if, if I remember the episodes of JAG that I've seen, you can have a military tribunal. Uh, you can have a sort of a court document, or a, a court set up to, to judge something. So I think that the word there is, uh, is mentioning that it's, it's going to be a thing uh, that all people will stand in. It's not simply, um, you know, sometimes when, you, when you're going into a public event, they say, you go through that door, you go through that door. And it's not really an event, you just sort of, you just filter through. Uh, but this is saying there, there's going to be a tribunal. There's going to be a judgment that you stand before. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think it does. I don't. I don't yeah. Sure. Does anybody know that word better than I do? Tribunal. What? It, where it comes from? What it means? Maybe. I, I don't know. <laughs> I'm not. Mike's got it in the back. Internet in your pocket. All right. Yeah. So there's a court set up. There's a thing that actually happens. You'll stand in the dock, as it were. Uh, a man on trial or a woman on trial. Yeah. So that's what it means. Thanks, Mike. Um, I was. Um, now, as we're, as we're getting down um, toward the end here, uh, a few more things to notice. Who, who will be judged? Who is it? Everyone. Every person? Anybody else? Angels, all fallen moral creatures. It doesn't mention anything about the unfallen angels, does it? Um, because Scripture doesn't mention anything about the unfallen angels. It, it talks about uh, the, the fallen angels, the reprobate angels, um, who have left their place being judged and then cast out with Satan. But it doesn't talk about judging uh, those who have never uh, entered into a, a fallen moral state. But all fallen moral creatures uh, will be judged. Um, and I've given you that, uh, that section of the confession. I think that's, as I mentioned already, uh, or that section of the catechism, uh, rather, those three questions. I think that's beautiful language. Take it home. Read it for your, your Sabbath afternoon. Uh, dwell on, on that sort of thing. And you can go and you can find, whether you find it online or you, you have a copy of it, you can find the scripture proofs. And, and, and it will point you in the direction of the fact that, that this is a scriptural reality that we're talking about. Um, but it, it's just this amazing idea uh, what does it say? We'll continue on with, with section or question 90. Um, they'll be caught up with Christ in the clouds. They'll be set on his right hand, and they're openly acknowledged and acquitted. That's the point of the tribunal uh, for those who are in Christ, uh, that there's a process of openly acknowledging and acquitting them. Shall so join with him uh, in the judging of the reprobate angels and men, shall be received into heaven where they shall be fully and forever freed from all sin and misery, filled with inconceivable joys, made perfectly holy and happy both in body and soul in the company of innumerable saints and holy angels, 
but especially in the immediate vision and the fruition of God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and of the Holy Spirit to all eternity. And this is the perfect and full communion which members of the invisible church shall enjoy with Christ in glory at the resurrection and day of judgment. It boggles the mind uh, when, you, when you look at it and when you read it. Uh, that's what we talked about uh, last time with this beatific vision. We'll see him as he is. And this is, this is the point of the judgment. Uh, section 2 goes on to say that, that it's all about revealing uh, the, um, the glory of God, uh, the glory of his mercy, the glory of his judgment. Uh, we are out of time. Um, but hopefully you've got enough there uh, to chew on uh, and to talk about in your families and with one another. Um, Chris, can I ask you to close us in prayer today? Thank you.